First things first, um, how's Shakespeare going? Okay. Good. Okay. Uh, two productions is, must be organized chaos. <laughs> yeah. God bless you in all good endeavors. That being said, how many of you have read Augustine's Confessions? Well, it's about time, isn't it? Right? Um, nobody is an intellectually serious Christian that hasn't encountered this book. It's a deep book, and an awful lot is going on there. For example, at the end, we wonder, what is time? Well, what is it? You read the book. Yeah. He says it's funny. Every, everyone thinks they know time until they're actually asked what it is in person. Yeah. Lizette, of course. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, every first grader knows what time is without having it explained to them exactly. All right. On the other hand, when asked to, to put it into words, well, <laughs> what is there to say? It, it's... It's a strange, rather queer um, entity. It's not like tables and chairs, right? I mean, if I talk about tables and chairs, um, they're different things, but they're the same kind of thing. Right? Time isn't like tables or chairs or doors or windows. Right? On the other hand, um, when asked what it is like, um, we can find out that it's like time. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a, uh, a flying leap towards a dead end, <laughs> right? And, you know, we're much the worse for wear. All right. Um, what'd you think? So you didn't think anything as I didn't know. I thought it was, uh, it was very good because it was a lot easier to read because it was just his biography, but also he threw in a lot of amazing lines and things that made you think, so... You got a good story out of it, but you also had a lot of good things like you get in the other books, too. Our souls are restless till they rest in you. Sweet line, you gotta like it. Okay, so the guy can write, okay. Um, we're around 400 here, so the Roman Empire is in the process of collapsing. And he's wondering, what is there to hold on to? Uh, the Eternal City is going to turn out to be all too temporal. And if Rome doesn't last forever, well, what does? All right. What else? Yeah. He's a particularly fun uh, person to read in the humanities class. I've already, already looked at the ancients and the Virgil and the Bible because he knows all these books very well and constantly draws on them. Okay, yeah. Um, he's a well-educated Christian and apart from somebody like Justin Martyr, in the early centuries there aren't very many of those. All right? Christianity moves from mostly city to city in the Mediterranean. It's largely an urban movement. All right? And not only is it an urban movement, but it's, it appeals to two ethnicities, Greeks and Jews. 
right? I mean, St. Paul, when he says, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, I mean, he's not pulling the, you know, he could have said Albanian and Chinese, but didn't. <laughs> right, there's a reason why, yeah. In school, would their core curriculum kind of just be like reading like Homer and like the Iliad and the Yeah, Iliad? they wouldn't call it the, co- co- uh, the uh, core yeah. curriculum, they would call it civilization. But <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. Yeah. I, I did a little research into this. Their education didn't emphasize breadth so much as it emphasized depth. Mm-hmm. So they took a few what, of what they considered the most important texts and studied them intensely. That's right. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a long tradition of civilization that goes into creating what we kind of call the common core now in the Western canon. But back then, um, it was thought that there were few writers worth reading. And what you wanted to do is something roughly like what was done with young Greek men during Periclean Athens, right? If you got raised as an educated young man, the first thing you're going to do is find out um, about Homer. And Homer is going to be our farmer's almanac. In other words, there's nothing you can't solve with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Got a problem? Think about Agamemnon. He had real problems. Afraid of death? Well, let's think about Achilles. He was afraid of death, and it turns out he had good reason to be because it was not very nice. Um, you want to learn how epidemics start? Look at the beginning of the Iliad. You want to learn how to fix them? Look at the rest of the first book of the Iliad. Um, pride goeth before a fall. Well, um, yeah, that's true, but it's also true that pushing the envelope with hubris is built into being an epicure. So, uh, yeah, the great standards will be Homer, Virgil, uh, maybe some of the historians. Uh, Insofar as you can get access to Plato and Aristotle, you will be given some of that. And you will study it line by line, word by word, the way the medievals studied, you know. Augustine likely had most, if not all, of the Indian memorized. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, what can we say about that? Um, remember that that was beaten into him as a, a primary school child. Um, Schoolmasters tended to be really harsh and use negative reinforcement wailing on you. All right? And that's an old and revered tradition. He had the, the education characteristic of someone that's immersed in Roman culture. Right? So the culture of the Mediterranean in the 5th century BC, early 5th century AD, is Roman culture. And Roman culture is a kind of patchwork of all kinds of stuff that they've encountered over the years and centuries, uh, organized around um, the Senate and people of Rome. Okay, so in other words, the Romans were like Americans. They thought of what, they thought that all of history led up to them. It's a good thing that we're special, <laughs> right. because you see, unlike all the other um, countries in the world, this will last forever, right? And it's particularly favored by the gods. Yeah. Famous last words. <laughs> All right. Um, the fact that he memorized the t- the uh, Iliad, uh, the 
Aeneid is not surprising, given the fact that it's the Roman national epic. He would know it. I mean, granted, the differences in size, but he would know it in the same sense that uh, you would know the Star Spangled Banner <laughs> every morning. That's the first thing you want to do, right? And uh, over the years, you absorb it, and his journey. The journey motif is back, by the way. Actually, it never went away. His journey is a parody of Virgil's Aeneid. Okay. Um, he is born in Carthage, and he's bad. It's not unique to him. Everybody's bad. Okay. So we start off bad. There's a pessimism about human nature that's something new here, something different. All right. The Greeks and the Romans, insofar as they are the inheritors of the Greek tradition, have an optimism about human nature. And of course, this makes perfectly good sense. If you don't have the idea of original sin, and you don't have the idea that man has fallen, well, then Plato is actually looking very plausible. In other words, all the problems of the human condition can be solved. All we have to do is control education and breeding and art within a society and the result will be that we will create perfect people and a perfect society. Now Plato of course has misgivings about that but the idea is this if you don't have the idea that human beings have fallen, they don't need salvation because there's nothing to save them from. Also, um, whatever problems we have are problems of our own making. All right? We didn't raise the children properly, thus they're bad. But if you raise them in the best possible way, the result would be the best possible children. And then when they grow up, you have the best possible society because you will have eliminated all the accidental flaws in human nature because they are not essential, they are accidental to human nature. Right? Now Christians have a much more useful and actually much more accurate view of human nature. They're deeply inclined towards saying that people can't be perfected. They're intrinsically messed up. There's always a fly in the ointment. Yeah? Augustine spends a large part of his uh, career uh, trying to combat some Christians who were trying to bring that idea of perfection into Christianity, the Pelagians. The Pelagians, right. And look, I have some sympathy for this in the sense that, well, yeah, uh, sin is latent in everybody. On the other hand, I look at the newborn infant I can't think of myself, what a wicked creature. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, if you think that's really wicked, you have some kind of problem. You know, it may be latent there, but it hasn't shown up yet. Right? Whereas you get the impression from Augustine that you start out bad, and then you get worse once you hit puberty. And I'm a parent, this is true. Yeah. That was in some of his thoughts of like him as a child where he was contemplating whether he was sinning when he was crying without knowing. 
like yeah. those little kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, Augustine has what I might call, um, in some ways, a, a realistic, but in other ways, an exaggerated conception of his own moral evil. In other words, for God's sake, they're only pairs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't have to get all overawed about this. It's not really the end of the world, is it? Right? There's a lot worse stuff going on in Rome than stealing fruit. All right? But of course, this is not just any fruit. This is the forbidden fruit straight from the Garden of Eden because his sin, like your sin, is every sin. Okay. Uh, the appeal to the Aeneid is marked and is worth looking at. We got that journey towards the uh, eternal city, but in this case, the eternal city is going to be the city of God, not the city of man. It's going to be a Christianized Rome rather than a paganized Rome. Right. Uh, this is a new twist, a new spin on the central Virgilian idea of pietas. That old pietas is, is dead. Rome is collapsing. And what's causing Rome to collapse is the fact that it was never favored by the gods because the gods they prayed to didn't, aren't real. They don't exist. Okay. He leaves Carthage, takes a sea journey to Rome. We've seen this before. Now, on the way, he has to eliminate distractions. So the concubine goes. Here's the deal. The concubine is Dido. Gotta go, babe. Gotta go be pious and found a city and everything. All right, and uh, by the way, I'm gonna unload you, but I'm gonna keep the, the child because uh, his name is Diodatus, which means gift of God, and he's mine. You are, you know, regrettably I'm full of sin, and we have sex all the time, so you gotta go to that. Okay. Um, so again, he's writing something like a parody of the of the Aeneid. Is that intentional? Yeah. Oh, look, you don't get an accident like that. Carthage to Rome, unload the girl, get on with your piety. Um, no, that's it. Even that if that was just his journey, that he was going to go anyway to Rome? Yeah, okay, but uh, um, I'm sure that he took other journeys. In other words, no doubt he went to and from the gymnasium or yeah. his workplace. Uh, we don't find out about those journeys. Eventually he's going to end up in Milan because he's attracted by uh, Ambrose. And what he learns from Ambrose is the all-important allegorical interpretation of scripture, which is from origin. Remember we talked about the patristics? Okay, so this is a tradition of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is principles of interpretation that says if the literal interpretation of scripture is nonsensical or unworthy or incoherent or otherwise, um, in, uh, improper to attribute to God. Then you start to get touchy-feely, and then you got to figure out what symbolically is being represented here. This gives you a lot of room to make Scripture say something more plausible than what it says that you're trying to get out from under. 
So, uh, you know, when we see Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, well, God doesn't have hands, all right? And I don't know that God prefers a right to his left since he's everywhere. So it's hard to figure out what God's right would look like. Or consider my personal favorite, well, we were made in God's image and likeness, except that God doesn't have an image or a likeness, which is an interesting claim, given that, well, what does this mean? All right. What I think it means is that we have moral freedom. But uh, it's a kind of primitive and poetic way of putting the idea of moral freedom. So look, we look like God made in the image of God. God doesn't have hands, doesn't take up space. So uh, there's going to be further refinements needed here. Um, we want to talk, then I'll come back, we'll come back to this. I'm glad you read this because this is very important. So my uh, version, or my edition of the Confessions includes an introduction from Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. I thought I'd read a short passage to you from what he said. Speaking of the confessions, Fulton Sheen says, the man who is here bearing his mind and his soul to God and to us is one of the key figures of all history. He was, to a far greater degree than any emperor or barbarian warlord, a maker of history and a builder of the bridge which was to lead from the old world to the new. I think Fulton J. Sheen is quite right here. Uh, after the Bible and the collected works of Plato, I can't think of another book that has had a, a greater influence on us without our even knowing it. Augustine is the father of Shakespearean soliloquy. He came up with the word soliloquy. He's the father of psychology. He's the father of romanticism, of existentialism. Uh, when you get to the modern era uh, with the Sugru and you read Wittgenstein, you'll find that arguably the greatest uh, philosopher of the 20th century, begins his great work by quoting Augustine. The Catechism of the Catholic Church summarizes uh, chapter one, part one, with a quote from the Confessions. This book has been influencing you before you even knew it, and for, most, for many Christians, it's their absolute favorite book, other than the Bible, of course. Uh, <laughs> it actually, it's no accident that uh, after Plato and the Bible is the most important because one of the central projects of Augustine is to show that the truths that are in Plato and the truths that are in Christianity do not contradict each other. So who is this guy, who is this man Augustine that uh, has so influenced us? Uh, when he was represented in statues and paintings in the medieval church and up to the modern era, he was always represented with his arms out with two things, one in each hand. In one hand, he held a burning heart and the other, a book or a pen. And I think that really summarizes who Augustine was. He was an intellectual with a fiery heart. Uh, there's no man quite like Augustine. He's sort of become, one of the great things about these books is that they allow these great men to become our friends, and I think Augustine has become a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, so let's look at, uh, at this, uh, Augustine the, the man of learning, and Augustine the man with the passionate heart. As I said earlier, uh, Augustine's education emphasized depth. So he, when he got, when he found something that was good, he just poured himself into studying and mastering the text. 
uh, until those texts just changed the very way that he thought. And, and I have an idea of what this is like. We've been, I've been reading books with Sugru for the last two years, and they, it wasn't very long before they started to change fundamentally the way that I think. The categories that I use, the very structures of my mind began to change. But I can't quite fathom what it must have been like to be Augustine because he was, he basically memorized Virgil, the Bible, I mean the whole thing, very close to memorized, at least the, certainly memorized the Psalms and the works of the Platonists. Uh, they, they just informed the structures of his brain to such an extent that he probably drew on them without even noticing it. I mean, clearly the Aeneid, drawing on the Aeneid is intentional, but I sometimes wonder if parts of it were unintentional, and just the very structures of his brain got him to write a story that was very close to the Aeneid. They're, it's very clearly intentional in certain parts, though, and we'll look at that. So I, I want to look at the influence on the confessions, on the very structure of the book that comes from these three sources. So first, uh, the Aeneid. Uh, Sigur has already pointed out that this is a new Aeneid. I, I want, but it's a deliberately Christianized Aeneid. And I want to look at one particular scene to show that. When Augustine is leaving Carthage, he is held up by a weeping woman. Uh, should call back to mind Dido weeping as Aeneid leaves. So, but instead of Dido, it's his mother weeping as he leaves for Rome. Now, if Augustine were completely faithful to the story, he would leave for Rome and his mother would go back and commit suicide. But she doesn't. She goes home, she offers up the pain and the suffering as a prayer to the God for the conversion of her son to the one true church. This is a deliberate twist and a response to Dido. Augustine became very infuriated with Dido as he got older because he was trained to weep over the sufferings of Dido when he later realized that Dido was ridiculous. Uh, and he's, this is a direct and pointed response to Dido. Dido, you think you're this great queen. My simple little mother is a wiser woman than you because instead of committing suicide, she prayed. And all women should be like this. So this is a, a deliberately Christianized Aeneid. Uh, also, the, the, the way that Augustine handles the Platonic tradition is just... Oh, sorry, before we get to that, let's look a little briefly at the... Christianity, uh, the, the Bible. As uh, Sigri said, it's uh, the, the structure of the book is the structure of the Bible. Uh, we're born, and then there's the tree from which Augustine steals the fruit, as much as Adam and Eve stole from, uh, took the fruit from the garden. And the, the story goes all the way up to the totally late experience which, in which he reads, uh, and this is no accident, he reads from St. Paul who is the model of all uh, conversion experiences, his famous road to Emmaus. But the, the really fascinating thing to me is how he uh, brings together uh, teachings from Christianity and teachings from Platonism. And we see this in Plato's idea of the tripartite soul. Now it's important to know when we uh, look at Augustine's use of Platonism that he had actually rather limited access to Plato himself. We're not sure how many of Plato's original works he actually read. What he did read, and what we're very confident that he read, is the works of what are now called the Neoplatonists, particularly Plotinus and Porphyry. Now what these, uh, these philosophers did is they, they read Plato and thought this is the bee's knees, this is the best thing since, uh, well, this is the best thing since Rome, or before Rome. Uh, 
And but these guys particularly liked they, these were spiritual seekers. So there's a lot of things that are in Plato's work. There's stuff on politics, there's stuff on ethics, there's stuff on aesthetics. It goes all over the place. But Plotinus and Porphyry particularly liked the metaphysics. So they sort of ignored most of Plato and then just developed his metaphysical system as far as it could go, applying it to the soul, applying it to life. And they also drew heavily on Aristotle to complement to Aristotle's metaphysics to complement Plato's metaphysics because they saw them as working together. It's one of the first great syntheses of the Greek thought in, in Plotinus and Porphyry. Uh, so Augustine read very little of Aristotle, very little, little of Plato, and actually had misconceptions about both of them. But he got their teaching mediated through Plotinus and Porphyry. And so through them, he got the idea of the tripartite soul. If you remember from Plato, there's the rational, the spirited, and the appetitive, each one with his own distinctive desire. The appetites desire uh, pleasure, the spirited desires honor and glory, and the rational desires truth and wisdom. Now, for Plato, there's one part of the soul that is just always excellent, and that's the, the rational part. So the key to being a good person is just to reorder your soul such that the rational is on top, and then everything will be good, and you'll be a perfect human being. Augustine likes the rational, too. But he has a different conception of whether, of which ones are good and how they're good. He looks in the Bible, and he finds in the letter of St. John a reference to three kinds of desires, three kinds of fallen desires. These are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says, ah, one-to-one correlation. The lust of the flesh is the disordered appetites. The lust of the eyes is the disordered reason. So for Augustine, you can have a disordered mind, a disordered reason. And this, the pride of life is the disordered spirited. You just want glory, and you want earthly glory. So when you, when you know this structure that Augustine has of the tripartite soul, and you go back and you read the Confessions, it opens up for you in an entirely new way, because books two, three, and four are respectively the corruption of his appetites in book two with the pears, the corruption of his intellect with the Manichaeans in book three, and the corruption of his spirit when he becomes a teacher and loves the vain glory of it in book four. Then book six is the reordering and the healing of his spirited part when he is humbled enough to recognize the goodness uh, and some of the truth of that Ambrose is teaching. Book seven is the reordering of his intellect where he comes to recognize that God is not a body, that he is transcendent and creator. And I want to spend a little time on this because it's important. Augustine's conversion, let me step back just a second. Growing up in a monotheistic culture, we do not realize how incredibly difficult it is to come to the conception of an immaterial God. The pagan conception of God was strictly material, so was the Stoic. There, we, as Augustine says, until I was 30, I could not even conceive of an immaterial being. It is very hard. We read the Quran. Every, almost every other page, God is creator, God is one, God is this. It's just beating it into the head of these pagans because it's so hard to come to that understanding, to, to really believe and understand that God is not a body. So what enables Augustine to finally realize that this is the case is the work of the Platonists. The Platonists show him that in order for him to think, in order for him to have the very faculty which enables him to see all these material things, there must be something in him that, as the Guru said, is something else. 
something not a body. So just by the very act of thinking, he realizes there is something, at least one thing, that is not a body. And once he has this conception of not body, he's able to see that God, in whose image we are created, is not a body either. We have something in us that's not a body, and God is not a body. He is an immaterial mind, not unlike our immaterial mind. So the uh, origin, maybe they have gone too far in trying to show that Platonism and Christianity go are exactly the same thing. But nonetheless, reason can be an aid to faith. And Augustine shows this quite well in book, uh, in book seven. And then finally, in book eight, you have the reordering of his appetites with the famous Tolle Lege uh, moment when he finally is freed from his lustful passions. So this, this is just the way that he thinks. It's amazing to me to see it come through. Uh, so that, that's, that's Augustine the intellectual, and there's so much more that we could talk about. But I want to uh, turn briefly to look at Augustine, the, the man of passion. Uh, and to do this, I think it's useful to compare him with Marcus Aurelius, who we just read recently. Uh, I, I love Marcus Aurelius. He's a dear friend. He's helped me immensely to, uh, to man up and tough it out. There are times where it's just, you need to be a tough guy and deal with it. And Augustine read the Stoics and was deeply impressed. He was like, yeah, I really struggled to uh, deal with my desires, and you guys did it without faith. Like, bravo, good for you. That's impressive. He was genuinely impressed with the Stoics. And sometimes people even accuse Augustine of being a Stoic himself. But he wasn't a Stoic. And here's where you can see it. Marcus Aurelius says that life is more like a wrestling match than a dance. You have to be always on guard because life might throw you at any minute and you have to always be tense and ready for action because life is dangerous and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way life is. Augustine isn't satisfied with that. If I were to put Augustine's into his own, if I were to put my words into Augustine's mouth, I think Augustine would say to Marcus Aurelius, if I cannot dance, then it is not worth living. Augustine wants the complete and total satisfaction of his entire human nature. And he wants it now, preferably. But later we'll do if I'm sure that it'll come. He writes at the beginning of the Confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless for they rest in thee. This is one of the most famous lines in all of world literature. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. Augustine has read all of the classical things. I should step back from that. He's, he has knowledge of the teachings of all the classical thinkers, uh, whether through mediated sources or direct contact. And he's looked at them, and all of them promise him happiness. All of them say, if you follow our teachings, we will give you happiness. And he's looked at their teachings, he looked at what they promised, and he's come to the conclusion that not a single one of them is able to guarantee happiness. The Platonists may became the closest with uh, the conception of Eros, of longing for God and final union with God in the soul. But Augustine reads uh, Plato's account of union with the good, and he says, well, wait, you left your body behind, and your body is part of you, and I want the complete and total, complete and perfect satisfaction of the entire human nature. None of this crap about going up to the one and then coming back down for a, set, a couple, after a, a thousand years. No, no, no. I want the complete and perfect eternal satisfaction of the entire human nature. And I want it deeply, so much. I will give anything, give up anything to get to that. And no philosopher can give it to me. 
And then he meets Jesus. And Jesus promises the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. When you get to uh, Pascal uh, next semester, you will find out that all of you are going to die, possibly tonight, possibly in a few minutes. There is nothing more imperative than figuring out right now on which side you stand. Because every one of you has a burning heart like Augustine's. Maybe you don't feel it every day, maybe you're not in touch with it, but you feel it. You want the complete and total satisfaction of all your human nature, of all your longings and desires. Rest for your restless hearts. Augustine's a lot smarter than us. He's read the philosophers. None of them are going to cut, cut it. Only faith in Jesus can give us guarantee of eternal satisfaction. And the only way that we can do that is to believe in him, to accept his grace, and to live a moral life until he calls us back home. So I beg of you in Augustine's place, open yourself to grace, believe, and live a moral life because that's the only thing that matters. Well done. Very well. That's an example of what the course is supposed to do, teach you how to read and write and think, and uh, also speak. Right. And that was very well done. Um, why does Augustine find himself so interesting? Now, granted, everybody finds themselves interesting, but um, not everybody writes a book about it. <laughs> All right. um, why does Augustine write the first autobiography in the Western tradition. As far as I know, it's the first autobiography in any tradition. Yeah. Christianity uh, has for the first time turned the searching light of the intellect on the individual in a particular way. Okay. Um, that's true. There's a sense in which Socrates does that too. That's true. Uh, although he, even there it's you don't have the concept of conversion. True. Yeah. I think it's either in book 10 or book 11 where he specifically talks about how we sense all these things around us, but none of us really look into their own mind and think, why am I thinking the things I'm thinking? Or he says the deepest thought that you can have is um, recognizing like the knowledge within yourself, kind of like he relates it to the heaven of heavens and in his experience when he was talking with his mother Monica before he left to uh, I forget whatever island it was but he says like no one ever fully thinks about their own mind and their own person enough and that's like the greatest contemplation so I guess that could kind of give a sense for his autobiography okay um, it's an interesting gambit that's certainly possible and certainly part of it the solution um, Augustine writes a curiously impersonal autobiography. The reason why is that Augustine's autobiography, he's not doing this out of pride or trying to display to the world what an interesting fellow he is. Instead, um, what he's trying to show you is the template of every life that gets religious illumination. All right? And the pattern is always the same. So insofar as you succeed in becoming a Christian, you're all Augustine. We're all Augustine. All right? Here's the deal. We start out bad. All right? This is in conflict with the Greek tradition. All right? uh, 
that have, the Greeks have an optimistic view of human nature where reason is the path to salvation. And it's not just true of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Um, different glosses on reason are what we're going to get in the breakup of Greek philosophy into Hellenistic philosophy. The Stoics say, tough it out. Right? Um, have your reason overcome your passions. That's the way to become a truly human being. But the Epicureans say something like that too. I think of Lucretius. Um, what he says is, if you're rational, you can free yourself from pointless fears because the afterlife and the divine beings that you torture yourself with are completely imaginary, so relax. Again, reason is the way out of the labyrinth. It's true of the skeptics. Be reasonable, don't believe anything, all right? How do you know? I mean, it would take more than one lifetime to figure out what's going on in the world. And the problem is we don't have time to study every religious text, every philosophical book, every different school of thought. So you got to choose one, and there's no way for us rationally to choose between them. So the rational thing is to, is to suspend belief. All right. Thus we get Lucian's philosophers for sale. So, Epicureanism, which we get in Lucretius, Hedonism, that we get in, uh, or rather, uh, Epi yeah, uh, Stoicism, that we get in Marcus Aurelius, and Skepticism, that we get in Lucian. What all these different schools of philosophy agree upon is that reason is salvific. In other words, reason is enough in the Greek tradition. <coughs> to move you from meat to spirit, from body to soul. Right. Now, this transition is not necessary or natural to human beings. Most people go through their lives without ever making this transition. They are damned, both in this world and in the next. So, Augustine is in search of salvation. And in the culture that he is raised in, that means learning to be reasonable in the right way. Now, according to Augustine, his life is like everybody else's life. So you start out bad. What does he say about infants in that first book? Yeah. They're constantly wicked and sinful. Um, and um, when you have your own children, you have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you will be convinced that, that is so. <laughs> right, because uh, the baby wants this now. All right? And the baby is sick now. And whatever your habits have been prior to becoming the parent of that child, um, you now have a new agenda and a new set of priorities. Whatever is wrong with the baby is going to be dealt with now. Yeah. 
there seems to be a particular rhetoric against uh, the philosophers in looking at the child because uh, he's like, you think you're rational? When you were a baby, you were sinning already. Yeah, very good. So people uh, are little libido machines. They want, they want, they want. Strangely enough, this is oddly similar to the conception of human nature you're going to get with Sigmund Freud. Right. Freud doesn't think that religion is the, is the path to salvation, but he's agreed with Augustine. Uh, human beings are really beastly. They're just awful. Right. Freud thinks that the solution to that problem is the satisfaction of desires. Hmm. Right. That's the materialist hedonist you would expect. Yeah, and it's, it just shows the loss of the wisdom philosophy. Plausible way of reading it, yes. Okay. So, there you are, sitting as an infant. You are the emperor of the universe. You want milk. You want to be held. You want to be rocked back and forth. You want, you want, you want. Um, everybody knows how to want on their own. How to give back is not natural to people that you have to learn. No baby has ever volunteered to shut up and let his parents sleep. It doesn't work that way. They want, they want, they want. Now, you start out bad, but then you get worse. All right? Puberty hits, and now, to your depraved nature, we add sexual desire. And it's not voluntary. Everybody gets it. Don't kid yourself and pretend to be pantheists. All right? Everybody gets that. And that is um, a transformation that is one directional. In other words, there's no way to go back and recover that lost innocence. Now your, your desires are more intense, more immediate, and uh, insatiable. All right? So you've got a hunger that can never be satisfied. Right. You can be satisfied briefly, but then the hunger reasserts itself. Right. So um, we start out bad all right, as infants. Uh, we hit puberty and then we become worse. I am a parent, a parent, I parented teenagers, yes, this is so. And you have been teenagers, and so have I, yes, this is so. There we go. All right. At that point, you steal pears. Why does he steal the pears? It's not even out of hunger, in other words, which is what pears are good for. They're supposed to be eaten. In fact, they taste them, but then they just throw them away. Now we've gotten to the point where your spirit, your soul, wants evil for its own sake, not necessarily for what it brings you. So why you steal somebody else's property, deny it to them, and then throw it away because you didn't really want it. All right? And that plus sexual desire is the human condition. All right? In other words, this is that Pauline bondage of the will that St. Paul talks about in the epistles of the Romans. You can't even want to be good, much less be good. 
that's that famous line, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Um, this goes back to something that Marcus Aurelius talked about. He said, look, the reason why you're wicked is because you want to become good some other time. You want everybody else to be wicked promptly, I mean immediately. You, let's hold off for a while, because there's a few bad things I want to get done before I become good. Yeah. Kierkegaard says we tend to be very objective with others and very subjective with ourselves. That's true, actually. And, and this is connected to Kant later on when we do him. Um, the problem with um, human beings and with the world is, according to Kant, the fact that we all know what right and wrong are. In other words, that's not uh, uncertain. We, we know perfectly good what our moral obligations are. They're easy and intuitive and obvious. The problem is not that we are, hmm, I wonder what the right thing to do is. The problem is that we want everybody else to do the right thing, and then we make an exception for ourselves, right? Pickpockets don't want their wallet stolen. Mafia hitmen don't want to be murdered. They think, on the whole, that people should avoid murdering one another, and in a broad general sense, you shouldn't lose your wallet. But pickpockets and murderers make small exceptions, and the exception is 100% of the time for them. All right. No one makes exceptions for other people's transgressions. You always make uh, exceptions for your own. He said uh, what Kant says, the categorical imperative, the idea behind it is um, all the bad stuff in the world comes from people knowing what they're supposed to do, but not wanting to do it. It's not a problem of ignorance, it's a problem of the will. Uh, when we do Kant, you'll find that he thinks of himself as an orthodox Lutheran, although you have to work very hard to make the, Kant orthodox anything, right? Because whatever he believes about Christianity is not something uh, most Christians have figured out. Right? Yeah, I know, it's an incredibly recondite, difficult uh, set of ideas. But the, but the big picture is this. Um, we are born evil, and we are in need of salvation. The Greeks don't have that idea. Right? This is a new Christian contribution. Right? It is a new direction in philosophical thought, but also in individual life. So, if any of you want to achieve blessedness, you're all, we're all going to follow Augustine's template. We start out bad, we hit puberty, we become worse, we sin for its own sake because our will is in bondage, we are not even free to desire what is good. And then, if we get God's grace, and we, we get the good fortune of having God send us a conversion experience that is utterly transformative and you become a new human being. This is your rebirth. This is being born again. Right. So, um, the only way to happiness and blessedness is through a conversion experience. So everybody's life, if they understand themselves and the world around them, is a kind of epic journey towards yourself. In other words, this is an internal journey, 
I mean, Augusta takes an external journey, but the most important of the journeys he takes is towards the core of himself. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you. So, uh, Augustine's autobiography is the, tempta- is the template for everybody. Everybody that has religious illumination has to go through the process that Augustine did. And there is no rational road to religious illumination. In other words, you can't think yourself into God's grace. Remember when he's in the garden? A garden again, get it? We're going to take another crack at the garden. And instead of eating pears that he doesn't own, he's going to hear tole lege, tole lege. It's a nice way of putting the conversion experience. But the point is, in the chapter before he has this illumination, um, he has intellectually accepted Christianity. The problem is, is that Christianity does not need your intellectual affirmation. It leads, it need, it leads a leap of faith. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's actually an accurate way of describing spiritual development. Um, It's really a good thing to be reasonable, but it's not the only good thing. There are other good things. And this is where the big question surrounding Augustine comes up. Um, What makes Augustine a transformation of the Greco-Roman intellectual tradition is that he's the first guy that says reason is not enough. All right, our skeptics, our Stoics, our Epicureans, um, you know, the whole nine yards of all the Greco-Roman philosophers, they may employ reason differently, but they all agree reason is enough. If you perfect your reason, you perfect yourself. Augustine says, unfortunately, it's not that easy. All right, you can't think yourself into Christianity. You need an internal spiritual change. And human beings are not sufficient through the power of thought to free themselves from the bondage of sin. So that you have to wait for. Now also notice that Augustine is in search, or rather, uh, Augustine's conception to... uh, connection to his mother is hugely important here. Notice that when she leaves, she's weeping as was pointed out, and he breaks with her, but he's in search of a new mother, and the mother he finds is Mother Church. And then he tells Monica, and then she dies. Notice the passing of the baton here. All right, he's found a new mother. Now, now she can go. Look, she's free from her life of prayer. She can go now die because she's gotten the job done. All right, and she's not an intellectual, but she is holy because she has accepted God's grace prior to Him. One idea that I would be tempted to make, and it's a little bit of an anachronism, but it's not far fetched, is that Augustine is the first Romantic. He's the first guy that says, look, you've oversold reason. Reason is not a skeleton key that unlocks every door. It will not solve every problem. 
And that's what marks the break between the Greco-Roman tradition and the Christian tradition. All right. The question is, is reason enough? And Augustine's life is a way of stating, no, it's not enough, it's insufficient. Now, here's the question. If reason isn't enough, what do we need? In other words, either we need reason or we need reason plus. Now, the question is, what are we supposed to add to reason to perfect it? And how are we going to find out what we need to perfect reason without being reasonable? In other words, how does reason show us that reason is sufficient? And the answer is in this longing for completion, which is not the product of any rational activity. It's that longing, that eros, that desire, that leads us up the ladder of beauty out of this world altogether, but the problem is, you climb the ladder of beauty rationally for Plato. Yeah. Although in the pages he speaks of the divine madness. That's true, and he's right. Not every kind of madness is bad. Some of it comes from the gods. Uh, that last prayer in, in there, that's a mensch, that's a real man. Right? You know, it's hard, I, I can't improve on that. Yeah. I'll just say it's similar to the way we're in, um, in the Republic, you just think you can think your way to the form of the good. That's right, yeah. Well, what else are you gonna do, right? right? In other words, reason is the ultimate human virtue. And what Christianity says is, no, it's not. Right? That's what makes this transformative. All right. um, if reason were sufficient to save both individuals and societies, Rome wouldn't be in the mess that it's in. Thing speaks for itself. Yeah. All right, this might be a huge stretch. Good. Um, but I was reading through the Confessions, and I got to book four, and I am going through American Civ right now, and I couldn't help but connect it to Jefferson. Um, because Jefferson, um, I know, I think Washington talks about him in his later writings, but he talks about him being like, he pursues virtue. He pursues like virtue in a good life, mm -hmm. but he doesn't seem to like need faith. Right. So I just was thinking about Augustine, and, and before he's talking about um, where's the quote? He says um, he's he prefers honest scholars and not wanting to harm anything. He's talking about this fly for a trophy, and I was just thinking about um, connecting it to Jefferson, how he's like he doesn't really need or consider faith to be super important. Um, but he's still trying his best to live a good life. Right. Uh, in other words, Jefferson is a creature of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And the Enlightenment is a uh, return of son of the sequel to the Greeks. Right. What they've done is said, look, we're sick to death of butchering each other over Jesus. Let's stop talking about theology and start talking about nature. Jefferson is quite a, a piece of work. He goes through the, old, the New Testament, kind of like this, with one of those exacto knives. And what he does is cut out, I mean, again, this is in a way uh, the inverse of what the uh, Gnostics are doing. He goes through the New Testament, he's got a couple of copies, and he cuts out with an exacto knife um, all the miraculous stuff. So what we get is essentially um, a sayings gospel from 1800. 
<laughs> All right. He says, this is the true message of Jesus. Not any of the, ma the magic show doesn't appeal to him. And I kind of understand that in the sense that um, what I find most moving about Jesus is not the miracles. All right. Um, I know that some people believe be on account of the miracles. My religious belief is the opposite. I believe in spite of the miracles. In other words, um, if what you, well, think about it this way. Think about Jesus and the crowds he's getting and how unworthy his audience really is. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of funny. He shows up and says, look, I want to show you, to instruct you about universal benevolence and compassion. I want to instruct you about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is within you. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, Jesus is offering them something new in the history of the world. How does the audience respond? They say stuff like, when's lunch? <laughs> right? I mean, do we get to see a miracle, you know, with the fishes and the loaves and stuff? We would really like to see that. In addition, uh, we don't have access to health care. Do you think you could do something about my pancreas? So we'd like a miracle there, too. And... Um, I can see Jesus looking at these people like, I just told you about the keys to the kingdom, and you're here for entertainment and a quick checkup. What the hell's wrong with you people? All right? And the problem is not unique to the Jews of 2,000 years ago. Wherever Jesus showed up, the problem was going to be the same. People were going to want the magic show because they're stupid. All right? And people are going to want some health advice. He'd be the Dr. Oz of the ancient world. Um, because uh, Jesus has been, you know, healing the blind and the lame and stuff. And Jesus says, you know, universal benevolence and compassion, all right? The idea of joining yourself to God in the afterlife. And almost nobody's interested in it, all right? That's not what sells them. What, sell, what brings the big crowds is the stuff that's peripheral. So... Um, the unworthiness of the audience is something you always have to keep in mind when you're reading the Gospels, right? Uh, the rich young man, Jesus says, okay, tough guy, come follow me, get rid of it all. He said, no, 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 I, I didn't mean that. I wasn't going to be that religious, right? Um, you'll notice when you look at, if you look at the parable of the rich young man, he says, yeah, I've always obeyed the Ten Commandments, and then he lists six things he's done right. <laughs> Jesus says, well, I want to add one more to that. Go sell all you have and follow me. And the guy says, no, that's not for me. Christianity requires full commitment. All right. And it's also a shot in the dark. You're taking a risk. Right. Uh, you are looking for religious illumination and the grace of God, and uh, we all hope to achieve that. I'm not sure that everybody does. I think actually that's pretty unlikely. Um, I don't know if God at some point extends the possibility of his mercy to everybody or not. In other words, since I don't know um, what God has been doing with people for the last, I don't know how many centuries, and there are quite a lot of people involved, I mean, all I know is that if you get the chance for a religious conversion, 
if you get the transfer conversion experience, grab it. Augustine did. He was walking up and down. Remember, he was a piece of work in that garden. Walking up and down, tearing his hair out, talking to himself, acting really crazy. Why? Because he accepted Christianity as intellectually true, but that's not enough. All right? You have to make that Kierkegaardian leap of faith. All right? In other words, there's no rational road right, to sanctity. Okay, now here's the big question. If there's no rational road to sanctity, and in order to have uh, a happy and satisfactory human life, we need to have something else besides reason, the question is, what else besides reason? And here's what's even trickier, how do you know? In other words, think about this. Throughout most of the history of the world, all right, um, people have found it hard to perfect their reason. I think that you can pretty much count on that. And some people have held that reason by itself is enough. I'm just not sufficiently capable of being reasonable. Others are saying, no, reason is not enough. We have to have something else. The question is this, all right, what else do you have to add to reason? How do you know that's what you're supposed to add? And how do you avoid the obvious you know, Greek danger here? I mean, Socrates would be the first to point out, well, you want to have something more than reason. Well, okay, what? And once it comes up, once this new thing that's not reason comes up, how are you going to recognize it for being the great thing that it is? And the answer that Augustine gives us implicitly is, you just know. Right? You know when you're in the presence of God. You know when you felt God's spirit upon you. And I actually think that's plausible. But the question is, for those of us that have not had a totally legacy experience, all right, we are looking around for something. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. With Pascal, it's going to be the night of fire. With John Coltrane, it's going to be his strange religious illumination with the jazz saxophone. No, it happens. It's real. Um, the problem is, if we want to go beyond reason, right, how do we ensure that we don't go beneath reason? In other words, you attempt to be more than reasonable, 99 times out of 100, you're going to end up being less than reasonable. Yeah. There, there, there are plenty of uh, religious fanatic cults that will show that to you. Right. In other words, um, the vast majority of the people in the world who said, look, forget reason, I have something better, are crazy, right? Are, are not, only not only crazy, but dangerous to themselves and other people. Uh, one among many possibilities, yeah. So, the problem is, once you try and go beyond reason, when you, the big headline of Augustine's autobiography is that reason is not enough. But that still leaves us open to the question, well, what is enough? And if reason isn't going to ju justify this extra stuff that you want to put into your soul, um, what does justify it? In other words, how do you go preaching and convince people 
that they need something that isn't reason or reasonable. Yeah. Well, I do think Augustine thinks that it's reasonable even if it's not reason. For instance, he gives the example of, uh, he says, I've, I've never been to uh, name a city, and but I, of people that I know have been there, so I believe that they, the city exists because they tell me. So okay. he, he uses that, as, he says it's reasonable to believe trustworthy sources. Okay. And then he wants to establish that the church is a trustworthy source. Okay. And how do we find out that the church or anybody else is a trustworthy source, if not by reason? You see how this is going to lead to a whole bunch of infinite regresses, right? Um, there are lots of people who make lots of claims about what we need to add to reason. The problem is, how do we justify these claims? And if it's not by an appeal to reason, what are we going to flip a coin? Right? That's the problem. So um, what this means is that unlike the case of Platonism, Dumb people, ignorant people, can become good Christians. You can't become a good Platonist to be stupid. You know? There's a great line in the City of God where he, uh, Augustine basically says, a little old Christian lady is wiser than you Platonists. There we go. That's right. Mom, you were right from the beginning. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. And uh, Mom knows that because Mom is Mother Monica. It's also Mother Church. All right. Uh, Take this a little further. Um, how are we going to go beyond reason? What does it mean to go beyond reason? It's an interesting question. All right. Yeah, uh, accepting a conversion experience apparently is, um, in and of itself, sufficient to trump reason. You know, that's the uh, that's the trump suit. But the question is, how do you know this? How do you communicate it to somebody else? And Augustine here, in my view, gets poetic in the sense that he makes stuff up. Because once we have gone beyond reason, we've also gone beyond language, at least in the literal sense. All right? So then you have to see, what he's trying to do is say, look, something happened to me all right, on the journey of my life that turned a corner and completely changed it was independent of reason, it's not the result of reason, and you should all pursue this divine illumination. Well, okay, how do we pursue it? What do you do to pursue this? I have a rough idea of how you get rational. We start out with stuff like arithmetic, and then I'll be moving on to the platonic dialogues. All right? Whereas, if you want to become something more than rational, I'm kind of at a loss here, what do I do? Well, here's the deal. You study and you hope and you pray, but that won't get you divine illumination. You're going to do that, and it's the right thing to do, but that's not what causes it. In other words, you don't earn a conversion experience. Right? And this is something worth thinking about. It's a central idea of Christianity, and I think it's generally true. Nobody deserves to be loved. Why? Um, look back at chapter 1. At the, wicked, at the wicked wretches we are. All right. What that means is you don't love other people because they're entitled to it. And other people don't love you because you're entitled to it. Rather, it's a free gift modeled on God's free gift of grace to people. Yeah. 
So he's saying you don't earn it through prayer, but it's wouldn't that be the only way to get it? Apparently not. I mean, apparently it's possible to have a, a, a conversion experience on the road to Damascus um, while persecuting Christians rather than praying about to Jesus. Okay. So what he's saying is it's, it's a free gift from God when he sees it fit. What he experienced, he said, look, you know what, when, you, when it happens? Well, I, I guess. I mean, I'm going to take your word for it. Um, we're in a very nebulous area here. All right, you'll know it when it happens. Well, Tertullian and Origen both thought that they had had conversion experiences, and yet they had some very squirrely beliefs, <laughs> and which were not reconcilable with each other or with Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. So the real danger is after the first conversion experience is if you have a second well, yeah, th then things are going to get a little bit more difficult because uh, um, if you're going to have two, you're going to have problems. Tertullian thought he was inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, well, Tertullian's a piece of work. He also, at least for a part of his career, believed that God had a body, a material body. Also that God uh, would f was infinitely forgiving except for apostates. <laughs> if they say they're sorry for being apostates, God says, no way. In other words, God is a giant Tertullian. <laughs> yeah. So the problem with that is, though, like, how do you know any better which conversion's right? If, like, you really feel that you had a conversion, how are you going to, how is someone going to tell you, oh, that's not the right conversion? The same way people go in other religions, they say, no, I've had this experience. You can't say, no, you didn't. This is the price you're going to pay for giving up on reason. Right, you thought that was going to be free? No, no, no. Well, now we're outside the realm of rational, rational discussion. So what do we do? Break out the Ouija board? Right? Flip a coin? Um, that's the problem that we're going to encounter when we try and be more than reasonable. The overwhelming likelihood is that we're going to be less than reasonable. If anyone's interested in pursuing this, uh, Cardinal Newman has a book called the, uh, uh, something about the, uh, the method of ascent, uh, where he tries to show how uh, reason and faith work together in a conversion. Uh, so it's, it's worth looking at. Okay. Um, it's peculiar that Augustine didn't notice that. I think Newman sees himself as in a, a development of things that are already implicit in Okay, I, I think that's a, I mean, a plausible argument because, well, we're all participating in the uh, structure of Christian life, and it's analogous to the structure of Augustine's life. All right, um, we do have this messy margin where faith connects to reason. All right, and when you read Kierkegaard, you're going to find out how messy this this margin <laughs> is. Right. But for now, um, we have the idea that reason is not enough. This is what's going to uh, animate, first of all, the Reformation. All right. Second of all, Romanticism. Remember when Luther gets all excited by faith alone? It's not an accident that Luther is an Augustinian monk. Of course, absolutely. No use for this. But then Luther would say, look, I'm being more than reasonable. What the hell do you want? 
And then he slapped and said, that's not the right kind of reason. He said, are you trying to teach me that it's not the right kind of reason? Using what? Back to reason again. The human condition is uh, is ambiguous and uncertain in many ways. Now, I'm, I'm confident that Augustine had a conversion experience. Whether the conversion experience was literally the voice of a child, which is, of course, really an angel, in the garden saying, take and read, and then he opened it up, and there it is, the exact right passage from Paul, which says, look, you're freed from the bondage of the will. Well, okay. Um, That strikes me as kind of the hard way of getting a a religious illumination. Right? And uh, what it literally is like, I don't know what he would want to say. I mean, yeah, an angel, angel means messenger. So we have a messenger from God bringing it to him. Um, Well, all right. Uh, how do you know that it's genuine? How do you know it's the right one? You think tole lege comes from nowhere? Okay. Uh, we are outside the realm of reason. And that means that uh, here we have things that are deep, not only unknown, but unknowable. All right. And that means that a blessed, wise, educated man I decided to forsake the realm of the rational, which is also the realm of the speakable, at least literally speakable. That's why I think that he needs a poetic image here, and that's what I think tole lege is. All right. It's a way of articulating in a kind of metaphorical form what this inner spiritual transformation is. Now, each chapter you'll find in this book... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, how do you get Aquinas out of that, and how does he compare? Go ahead, help us. Uh, Aquinas studied under Albert the Great, and what Albert the Great did is that he presented as mutually compatible Augustinianism and Aristotelianism. Uh, so uh, Aquinas's great project is to show that uh, reason and faith are ultimately compatible. And the way that he does this is by saying that reason cannot prove any of the doctrines of the faith, but there's no doctrine of the faith which reason can disprove. And that's, that's how he holds them together. So you're saying that Augustine essentially says we, we shouldn't look to reason. Well, no, you have to be reasonable. Otherwise, you won't put clothes on in the morning or have breakfast. Okay, can you explain again how tole lege was both faith and reason? Well, um... What he's looking for is a way to say the unsayable, right? He says, look, I had a conversion experience. Well, we might sensibly ask the follow-up question, what was that like? And, uh, well, if you want to get a literal transcript, what you're looking for is Pascal's Night of Fire. Fire. Fire, fire. God of Abraham and Isaac. (laughs) The problem is, remember, I started the, the term, and we looked at what you can do with language, and we had a problem with the smell of coffee. All right. If you're using an instrument that is insufficiently robust to talk about the smell of coffee, talking about your personal illumination from God, I'm not optimistic about people's capacity to literally explain that. 
I mean, what words do we use for a thing like that? All right. So I don't think it's unreal, but I think that it's something that you can't literally speak about. So what you need is either some breakdown of literal language or you need some image. Right? Paul's on the road to Damascus, gets knocked off the horse, gets blinded for three days. Right? Then he sees. He's getting spiritual insight. Okay, um, if it were, was two days rather than three, that's not a big deal for me. I mean, three is a really good number. Two isn't nearly so good in the Bible. Um, what I think we're getting there is an attempt to create uh, a poetic image that leads the mind in the direction but does not take you to um, the experience of God. Right? And I don't doubt that there is such an experience. I've had it. Right? I, I believe that there is some such thing. But um, how to talk about it once we've left reason behind, um, things are going to get really strange here. That's why I particularly like, I like so much Meister Eckhart. Mm -hmm. He's that great German mystic. And uh, he said uh, one of, in one of his sermons, I've never heard God's voice, but I have occasionally heard God clear his throat as if to announce his presence without speaking. Which is the thing that just blew me away at the time because I could never have thought that sentence up in a million years. And the more I look at it, the more it is, that is exactly what I was trying to say. And this is not about clearing your throat. All right. Um, usually when, if people claim that God has talked to them directly, um, that's schizophrenia. All right. Uh, on the other hand, to have felt in some rather inexplicable way the presence of God... Yeah, I, I actually think that's true. I mean, he doesn't talk to me directly, but he does clear his throat as if to remind me, look who's here. All right? And uh, that poetic image is something that, look, um, God signed off on that before he released that into the world. Um, and it's true, but it's true in the sense that poetry is true. All right? It's not literally true. It's not about clearing your throat. God doesn't have a throat. But it's about the ineffable experience of the divine. Right? And so all Christian writers are going to run up against the glass prison of language. All right? And you can run it as much as you want. You're going to bounce off it as if it were made of iron. And you're going to stand... Stuck, be stuck in your cell of language trying to figure out how to slip between the bars. What you do that with that, or the way you do that is by creating poetic or metaphorical discourse. Right. Yeah. Well, analogy is tricky. Okay. Um, I like metaphor because metaphor is explicitly uh, nonsensical. Right. Have you thought about this? The nature of metaphor is it's such that you say uh, my love is a rose. My eye is a window. Well, it's not literally true. It's figuratively true. Okay, but the problem is you can't do logical operations on metaphors. All right. Uh, if my love is a rose, is my uh, uh, is my home uh, 
or my, my friendship uh, a thorn or a leaf or you know what do we got there or if my eye is a window does that mean my eyelid is a windowsill no it doesn't right? so in metaphor you can't you're, you're explicitly stating something that is by definition false that x is y not is like or is as y but is y and that's what I would call meaningful nonsense it's communicative and it's cognitive. It just it doesn't make any sense. This is the nightmare of the Athenians. Here we are using language in a way that goes beyond simple rationality. Yeah. Plato, when he can't speak any further, writes a myth. There we go. Yeah. Plato knows his business. He paints himself into a corner occasionally, he realizes that he's stuck and says, you know, this reminds me of a story. <laughs> right? uh, uh, let me tell you about the myth of the metals. Let me give you the myth of Gyges. Let me give you, uh, you know, the uh, myth of Ur. All right, and there are lots of this. You know, the, the chariot and the charioteer and the fetus. So, um, Christianity then is more than reasonable, but that means that there are strange constraints imposed on our ability to talk about such things. Right? In other words, it's a little bit of the, the tendency that we get in the Old Testament. When God shows up, it's in some really weird form. A bush that's on fire in the desert. Well, that's different. And it's named I Am, in case you were wondering. All right. uh, it owns a bunch of slaves that the Pharaoh thinks he owns. And uh, it stands there and doesn't consume itself. So we have a talking bush. Alternatively, if you look at uh, something like Job, you get a tornado. If you look at the New Testament, you get a man on a cross. Well, I'm happy to affirm that all those things are God or some access to God, yeah. Um, but it has occurred to me that a man on a cross is substantially different from a fiery talking bush. Um, if God were to reveal himself unmediated by any such physical thing, um, I don't think that we would be able to comprehend it. And I'm very confident we would not be able to explain it to other people. All right? So what we're doing here is pushing the envelope, pushing the limits of what you can do in language. And that, I think, has always been a problem for not just Christian theology, but theology in general, the attempt to talk and reason about God. There are intrinsic limits to that. Right? Um, you can't investigate God by doing induction. You can't go to the lab and do God experiments. You can't derive God from axioms. Why? Because you can set up any set of axioms you want, and you're going to get all different versions of God. The sole remainder is reasoning by analogy. That's what Aquinas likes. And yeah, I think that he's found what's left. The problem is, is that the amount of knowledge you get by reasoning from analogy is very dicey. And well, as Aquinas would be the first to admit. That's right. Not only is it really dicey, but uh, 
the kind of knowledge you get from analogy is always going to be polyvocal. In other words, it doesn't give you just one answer. It's more like Aristotle's ethics where there's a number of reasonable answers. And unlike Aristotle's ethics, the spectrum of reasonable answers is much, much larger. Right? Think about it this way. Right? Let me give you an example and we'll close with this. And we'll, we'll come back to these ideas, but let's think about this. Suppose, instead of wanting to inquire into God, I wanted to inquire into starfish. You know what starfish are? They're not mysterious, these things on the bottom of the sea, okay. Now suppose you couldn't find out about starfish inductively, and it also turns out to derive the, uh, the, uh, the, the starfish from a set of axioms, that's just silly. Suppose you then, I wanted to teach you about starfish using analogy. All right, hold on now, get ready for this. A starfish is analogous to a lion. How is it analogous to a lion will be your next question. The answer is mollusks are really afraid of starfish because they creep very slowly across the sea floor and they wrap themselves around the uh, shells of clams and they press the, cells, the shells so close together that they prevent the clam from opening up and breathing, which is how they eat, they kill clams and how they eat them. Okay, now, when I tell you, remember, you've never seen a starfish. When I tell you that a starfish is like a lion, you're likely to just gape at me. What? Um, but, now, because, well, it doesn't tell you all that much about starfish to find out that they're analogous to lions. Okay, here's the, 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 the bad news. Lions are much more like starfish than anything on earth is like God. Because God is something else with a capital S and a capital E. Okay, so if you were unimpressed with the experiment in zoology, which allowed me to explain starfish to you, by analogy to lion, okay, um, that is the lion-starfish analogy, is positively bursting with information compared to any analogy you make between a thing that you've experienced, tables, chairs, books, and God. So, in other words, reasoning by analogy right, to God is considerably less obvious in its contribution to your understanding than the claim that starfish are like lions, or they're analogous to lions. Now, when I tell you that starfish are analogous to lions, and then I said, go out into the world and bring me a starfish, good luck with that. You're never, you're never going to find it. All right? it. The only access that reason apparently gets to God is through analogy, and the analogies that we're going to make to God are infinitely weaker than the analogies of lions and starfish. <laughs> okay. Um, 
are you optimistic about completing this project? Are you optimistic about uh, the domain that, that this could possibly offer us? I'm not. Right? Yeah, I mean, God is like a ruler. I understand that. But he's also significantly not like a ruler since kings don't create universes. And there's that. All right. Um, so there's something to think about. All right. Um, analogy is a very, very weak read. And yet induction and deduction are not going to get us where we want. Negativa. You know, look, I like that. And I actually practice my own version of that. That's what I call, I mean, you know, I'm happy to call God Yahweh or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or whatever or terms you want to use. But for me, God is something else. Capital S, capital E, it's not like anything else. All right. And it's radical otherness is a way of saying it's not like anything else that I've experienced or could possibly experience. Um, you may ask, well, what does that tell me? And the answer is precious little. All right. um, imagine trying to, define, trying to explain a starfish all right, by explaining what a starfish is not. It's not a desk. It's not a pony. It's not the NFL. It's not... <laughs> Former President Obama. <laughs> it's not a doorknob. Um, this is actually uh, not getting anywhere. <laughs> this is actually like the decimal expansion of pi. And eventually, don't see this is completely a waste of time because you get further and further from where you started, you don't get any closer to the end. All right. um, figure out what God is not like. Um, that's even for me anyway. Even worse than analogy. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Um, but if that's what I understand about this, well, and it seems to me like uh, faith is going to loom very large here. That's right? And there's no way of getting around it. That's essentially my There's no substitute. That's exactly right. All right, here we have some. We've played with a book, and this is an interesting book. Um, it is a book for you to calculate and think about. Next class, we're doing the Quran. Who wants to present? Go ahead, admirably done. And uh, I want you to read the whole thing. In other words, break down, read it. And uh, each of you is to find at least one passage that you want to talk about. All right, see you all in. Boys, I know I have your two papers.